I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the Jam Bunker 2.0, and if all goes well, we will have flooring delivered today. I do not know when it is going to get put down, but we are taking the fact that flooring will arrive as a win. I am so excited to have Gina Barreca on the program today. Her book, Fast Funny Women, is out now. We had such a good time talking, and she is one of the most phenomenal people that I've ever talked to. She was called a feminist humor maven by Ms. Magazine, and she's the author of 10 books. She's edited 11 others, and Fast Funny Women is one that she's edited. Her works have been translated into several languages, including Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, Portuguese, and German. She's appeared all over television, CNN, PBS, the BBC, The Today Show, NPR, and Oprah. She's one of the first women to graduate from Dartmouth College in its early years of co-education. She was the first woman to be named alumni scholar by that college. She earned her PhD at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's the only full-time female academic to be a member of the Friars Club, and she's an honoree of the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. 
She's also been awarded four honorary degrees. And this is just like the truncated bio. So that's who you're about to listen to. And my favorite part of her entire bio is this. She lives with her husband, Michael, in Connecticut. She keeps busy, which is like the understatement of the year. Before we get you to Gina, as you know, some business we got to do. The Jam is now coming to you every Wednesday. There's a couple things you can do for us. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also pop on over to Facebook and leave us a review there. Or head to the Writer's Jam and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. Don't forget, you can check out our new video podcast series. That's always on the website. You can also get it on the Solid Listen Podcast Network YouTube channel. And you can hear the audio versions of that on this channel right here. If you want to buy books of anybody you've heard on the program, click on the bookshop link on our site. When you do that, you'll support local and independent bookstores. We get a little scratch back. You can get book reviews. So we're slowly putting up the reviews of all the books that we've read of the people who have been on the program. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter where you can get book recommendations, podcast highlights, and other happenings around the web. The last thing you can do there is support the Solid Listen Network. Click on that Patreon button, which I said right this week. We're very happy about that. For just a couple bucks a month, you'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Now, I'm going to make today's short and sweet, because I really do want to get you to Gina as fast as possible. We had such a great conversation for so many reasons. Um, One, she's just personable, and I am a talker, and so... It was very easy for us to talk. Our pre-call, I think, was something like an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. And this is a sort of edited down version of that because we talked for a really long time. She's fantastic and interesting and is working class kid, sort of has all of the things that hit the world that I find fascinating. And listening to her talk about like all of her work and everything she's done with such joy. And I know it's, this is promotion, right? Like people are out promoting their books, but I've been doing this for a really long time. And you can tell when somebody is bullshitting you with promotion and when somebody is just genuinely excited and happy about life. Gina is excited and happy about life. Everything is not a challenge, but an opportunity. Like, this is just what I took away from it. it. The reason our conversation just kept going, and we've emailed each other a few times since then, is that we are, I think, both fascinated in other people. And for her, that has generated this amazing career of both, I mean, there are 21 books that she's been a part of, plus all of the teaching that she does. And I took out a bunch of stuff about teaching just because, Um, I had like this, I couldn't have like a conversation that went on all day, but I will say that it is, I am really impressed with somebody that can both take on the emotional stress of teaching writing and teaching a creative endeavor and keeping up her own creative endeavors while maintaining that level of energy, uh, for someone like me who have spent the last four years now in trauma therapy and really have been trying to rebuild my emotional life from the ground up going, you know, from way back when I, I see people like Gina and I'm just, I'm in awe in awe. And I think you will be too. I think you're going to love her stories. Like you're going to wish you were sitting in a bar here in some of these or sitting on a front porch, drinking some tea 
because it's fantastic. She's fantastic. I cannot wait to read the book, which is an edited book. So she went out and got all of her friends and former students and people that she knows to write these essays, which also sort of is seems very much in character for her. How can I gather a bunch of people together? And we talked a lot about the community of writing. So Gina's fantastic. I can't wait for you to hear this. Um, there's no need for me to belabor the intro today because she's way more fascinating than anything I'm ever going to say. So thank you for stopping by the bunker today to spend some time with Max and I. I hope your day is going well, that you're taking care of yourself and each other. I hope that if you haven't got the vaccine, that you get signed up for that soon. We'll, we're still waiting to get to 1B here in Pennsylvania so I can get on that list. But for now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Gina Fereca. at the University of Connecticut and I teach uh, creative writing as part of what I teach and one of the things that they have to do to pass the course and I don't care they've written brilliant stuff they have to send their work out at the end of the class they have to send three pieces out we decide that's what that's what they do that's what they edit but they come to my house this you know next year I don't know what's going to happen but (laughs) and I didn't teach it this last spring but um they come to the house and they have to hit. I stand over them when they <laughs> hit because I do not trust a writer because I'm a writer. Yeah. I don't trust writers. I stand over them until they hit submit um, because <laughs> otherwise they will go home and think I'm just going to change. You know that sentence. I I could have written a more engaging cover letter, and I'm like, you hit submit. You do it now while I'm here. Right. And I said, one way or the other, you will never have to do this for the first time again. One way, you will either get your first acceptance or you will get your first rejection. Both of those are really important things <laughs> that have happened. But they have to see and they have to choose their magazine. I said, you're not sending this to the Paris Review. You're not sending it to the New Yorker. You're sending it to the New Ohio Review. Yeah. No, you're sending it to Red Hand. You're sending it, you're sending it to a place, but you have to read it first. You have to read. They come in with a mission statement of the, of the place. They have to know what else has been published. They have to know if they're applying to, uh, you know, it's a special issue. They're looking for certain topics. You know, that's a really good thing to look for. But they have to understand that when I'm, ta- I'm asking them, it's like, who's your favorite writer? That it is not, who's your favorite, like, contemporary writer that... They can't just say, you know, um, Robert Frost, because that's right. the last thing they read. Right. You can't say somebody who's been dead, like, for five lifetimes. You actually have to talk about somebody who is published within yeah. the last 10 years. I mean, I even give them that. But they don't believe it. <laughs> uh, you know, they don't. And then for them to start to understand that they're allowed to be part of a community, of writers, you know, it's that terrifying moment you realize that other people are doing it. <laughs> you know, you're not the only one yeah. who's actually doing this now, and everybody else is safely dead, so you don't have to think about <laughs> it. Right? But that it's it's also that um, you know, that there are other people that they can meet and talk to and like and yeah. and form their own groups of people with. One of the best parts about the podcast, and I I actually talked about this on today's intro, is that 
you know, the, every once in a while I interview somebody and it's like, oh my God, like we see each other, we understand yeah. each other, we have that Venn diagram of like experiences yeah, they go right, through. Right. But I've never had a bad interview in the 120 of these that I've done because at the end of the day, every writer's journey is basically the same. Like you're an outsider trying to figure things out, you live in your head you're sort of an observer of the world. Like there's enough of those things. Yeah. 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 And you know, once you get engaged in the literary community, you know, when you're young at 20, you don't know that. Right. Now at 48, I'm like, Oh my God. Like I actively seek that out because that makes my life better as opposed to 20 when you're like, I need to be the voice of a generation. And you know, I can't be involved in anything. I'm like, well, that's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> or and that fear that writers have that if I, I, I so many people and, and I'm 63, so I'm a different generation from you. Yeah. And um, and and, you know, it, it, it was around your age when I started realizing that um, I, I was older than my students parents, because for a while it would be yeah. like you and me, you and yes. me your parents. Yes. And then I realized, like, at 47, 48, it's like, no, I'm older than you, but your parents yeah. are 44. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's gone. And now I'm, I'm simply their grandmother. So yeah. I, it's just fine. It's, it's still not how I think of myself, but I'm dealing with it. And um, But one of the things that, um, that happens is when people who are not used to being part of a writing community or that they come up and people must tell this to you, not the, the ones who are on the show, but that you're dealing with who are emerging writers. Yeah. And um, it's like, I don't want to tell you what I'm working on because I'm afraid someone will take the idea. And it's like, oh, honey, I, it, it should only be that good. Right. <laughs> now, if no one can, the, uh, titles can't be copyrighted. Right. So I don't care that if you think this is the best title in the universe. I could, you know, your next book could be called The Bible. <laughs> and, you know, uh, that's fine. Or Sex and the Single Girl or whatever you think the bestseller right. is. And, um, and it's not, you can't copyright ideas. You have to, it's the way, I said, promise me, this is, you know, your story the way people are going to read it is when you make it everybody's story. Yeah. Not that it's going to be so different from everybody's story, but the way that other people are going to go, wow, that's a version of my story. Yeah. And, you know, they, but they get so scared to say anything. And I'm like, really, out of all the stuff you want to worry about as a writer, the idea that everybody's going to steal your ideas, that's way down on the list, as opposed to like, how am I making my rent? Right. Or how, I mean, like, the grow, what's my day job? How am I going to support myself? How am I going to make myself right? What do I do when I feel like, oh God, I'm just, you know, one word after the other just seems like too much heavy lifting. Those are the things you worry about. Not, yeah. you know, how are they going to take this all from me before I've actually written any of Anything, it? yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. You know, the most interesting people that I've ever been around and worked with are the people who, ideas just shoot out of them on a regular basis, right? Like they would never have the worry that like somebody might take something because to them, their creativity is not finite. They're right. like, well, they're, like I'll just, this other, like it never crosses their mind. And you know, those people, like when you come across them, you're just like, you want to follow behind them. And like, you're like, well, I'm just grabbing the little nuggets that are falling out of your pocket because you know, that's amazing. That I think is the joy of getting older and, 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 and settling into that writing group and going like, oh my God. Yeah. 
Like we're all in this together. Just as you said, when it's not, when you realize it's not finite, it's not a zero sum game, that somebody else's success in no way infringes on the possibility of your own ability to get your voice out there, your words read. Yeah. And that, you know, and and part of this, I think, I don't know if you'll agree with me, is that with the idea of all of the, you know, the major publishing houses, when I, I mean, when I started out, um, uh, my first book, uh, the first, I, I edited a couple of books while I was still in graduate school. I, I had no idea I was going to you know, yeah. become uh, a college professor. I mean, and anybody who knew me in high school or even in college, you know, would have pointed and laughed and said, yeah, right, she's going to, yeah, right. No, that's not what that brought going to do. That was not, uh, it was not the likeliest uh, thing for me to, to be. And, um, but uh, but once I got into graduate school, I figured out, like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I, again, need to find a job. I was, you know, the first one, uh, first girl in my family ever go to college. It was the, you know, neither of my parents graduated from high school. And um, so I knew I was going to need to make a living. And so I was going to take this really seriously. Like, once I figured it out, it's like, okay, they need to get tenure. They need to do this. I'm going to make sure I nail this process. Right. And so I edited a couple of books while I was still um, in graduate school and and then turned my dissertation into both an academic book and a trade book. But that happened absolutely out of the, the academic version I worked very hard at. But the trade book, which became the first sort of bestseller, um, was called, they used to call me Snow White, but I drifted. And it's based on no. it's the differences between men and women's humor, <laughs> which is what the dissertation was on. But it's all, the dissertation is like on, you know, George Eliot and Jane Austen and Virginia Woolf and Muriel Spark. And the trade book is about like the dating game. You know, uh-huh. and Cosmopolitan and... Like the dating game, like the show, the dating game. Yeah, the yeah. show, the dating game. I mean, like, that's what I grew up watching. I grew yeah. up watching, you know, the Patty Duke show. Uh-huh. There was, you know, identical cousins yep. and we'll find and, um, <laughs> you know, and how that played itself out. So it it was... Uh, and, be, and that happened, talk about the community stuff, because I read an article by a woman who was in the Women's Review of Books and she was asking, how come there were no writers? This was like in uh, 87. And she was saying, how come there were no writers? Where's our Erica Jean? Where's our Kate Millett? Where's this generation's? And I sent her a postcard because people did that in those yeah. days. I and still then, send postcards. I don't know. No, that's great. I'm, yeah. I have, I'm surrounded by pieces of paper. I have all kinds of things. Literally, my letter writing box is next to me. It's really, no, it's, I mean, I got the whole, you know, everything is pieces of paper. Everything is, is right here. It's just, I got my postcards right here. Oh, I have those. I have those postcards. The literary postcards. Yes, the literary postcards. I have them. I have them. Really, that's amazing. So either you're younger than you think or I'm older than you think, because I feel like, you know, I watched the dating game and the Patty Duke show. Yeah, this is all the same that those 12 years or whatever. And the same cultural trough. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and so, uh, but I, I, wrote, a postcard. I sent her this postcard and I just said, you know, that's great. I'm looking for those writers. And, you know, she, at that point, her name is Carol DeSanti. And I see that she was working at Dutton and, um, and she said, Oh, if you're ever in New York, let me take you to lunch. 
And now at that point, I was splitting my time between the Lower East Side. I lived on Lafayette Street. I asked her place in a rent-stabilized building that, you know, a parking lot where, you know, bodies would be found regularly. It was it was the Lower East Side when it was yeah. the Lower East Side. And also, like, New York in the 80s is different yeah, than New York yeah, in the aughts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> like, I couldn't afford to walk down that street now, let alone yeah. But it's still a rent-stabilized building. I mean, that was the golden piece of luck. And um, so I said, no, I'm down there three days a week. I commute up and back. I'm not giving up a rent-stabilized apartment until I get tenure. I mean, I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm not stupid. Right. And um, so she took me to lunch. It was the first time in my life, I was 30, that anybody like my age, who's exactly the same age, had an expense account. <laughs> and so I could order food like from the left side of the Not menu. off the appetizer list. Yeah. And like, it's like, I won't have lentils. You know, I won't like, you know, because I usually ordered as if I was ordering in Hebrew or Chinese. Yeah. You know, you go from the from the right side and see what's 295. And she was like, no, do you want dessert? I'm like, can we do that? And she was the one who said, look, you, why don't you turn this academic book that like four people will read yeah. and that might get you tenure because it's from a university press, um, you know, into a book that people will actually read and enjoy. And I was like, I don't know if I could do that. And she said, we could probably pay you. And I said, I can do that. I can I, totally do that. Yeah. I can so do that. I've just and, checked with my manager. And yeah. <laughs> I am available for the work. Yeah. And um, I just check with my student loans and it's so interesting <laughs> yeah. how I can do this. And um, you are a writer. And yeah, no, no, no. no. There, people say, what's your inspiration? There's no such thing as inspiration. There is a deadline and a check. Yeah. And the check could be 29 cents, but it's, you know, four copies of the issue that you just yeah. got published in. I, have to, I used to tell young writers all the time, within ethical bounds, there's no such thing as a bad writing job. Yeah, no, it, yeah. no, no. And, and, and those ethical bounds are very flexible. Yeah. I, mean, I do not have spanks on my ethical bounds. Right. right? Well, I mean, more <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to write content for like Stormfront or a Nazi. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm not, okay. yeah. Okay. But like okay. when I was writing my book, I wrote my first book. Yeah. Uh, Complex Magazine had a custom publishing wing and they did the magazine, in store magazine for Target back before. Like, and they paid me $2 a word to write 2,000-word video game reviews a month. So I got $4,000 for a day's work, and then I spent 29 days working on my book. That shit never went on my resume, but are you kidding me? I would put that be the first thing on my resume. That's two bucks a word. Yeah. That was when... That was when the wording was good. <laughs> 2001, I feel like and it was because it was Target, right? Like, yeah. so it was, no, they just wanted real. that magazine. It was what you picked up when you went in the store. And I thought I can write marketing copy around video games. No, that's, that's, I respect that entirely. Yeah. I mean, I worked writing stuff for, um, you know, development at, uh, you know, when I was in graduate school, I have, I have written again for everywhere, everything that's basically ever asked me to also yeah. Not for, I'm trying to think if there's places that- $50,000 a year for 24 video games, I feel like is about as good as it gets. I think that is. I think you win. Yeah. I really do. I think like, you win. It's yeah. the only way we got the book done. And like, you know, I also got, uh, what, 24 video games? I don't really play games, but like my friends did. So I'd give them to them. Like I had all the marketing stuff so yeah. they could have all the images and stuff. Like I was a superstar. Right. You had all your birthday presents covered. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. That's so, that's. So I want to get to, I want to go through your story because 
I always love it when I get people on here. It's both depressing when I get people on here who have a bunch of firsts, like you were the first this and the first that, but also really important and really amazing because you're so uh, gregarious and you're so funny that it's very easy to like not realize like, oh, you actually have done a whole bunch of shit in your life that like people <laughs> need to also know about. Yeah. So where were you born? Where does this story start? This story starts in Brooklyn, New York, as so many stories do. I yeah. mean, <laughs> it started on Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, and um, in a three-story house where uh, Italian family, my mother was French-Canadian, but she died when I was pretty young, which is also part of the story. But, but I was raised by sort of this like big Italian family. She moved down to live with my father's family. And um, so we had like great-great-grandma in the attic, and she was only brought down on feast days, you know, that was like the big thing. Yeah. And now she'd be in the casino because right. that's elder care. In right. America, right. That's what we do. <laughs> so she would be pulling, you know, she'd have her bag next to her. She'd be pulling the lever. Um, and, and, and then there were the aunts and the grandma, like the major arcana of aunts and stuff. And, and these women who now I realize younger than I am, but they were all built, um, <laughs> They were uh, about four foot eight, yeah, and they weighed about six hundred and fifty pounds, and so they looked like Ottomans. You know, they all wore floral print dresses at all times. And it was like the only thing missing was the button on the top of the head. Uh -huh. They were like, they would be on casters. They were moving around. And of course, these houses, I don't know if you know Italian people. Do you ever go there, right? That there were two two kitchens. There's the upstairs yeah. kitchen uh -huh. that's immaculate, perfect, fully appliance. No one has ever had a meal cooked for them in that kitchen. And it would be, you could, it, it, the people that would be cooked for in the kitchen would be the people who'd be allowed to sit in the living room that no one could go to. <laughs> like a lot of poor people of all colors um, that there was, uh, you had one room where there were three people, you know, three pieces of, bro of uh, brocade furniture that matched you know, covered in industrial gray yeah. vinyl. Yeah. And that if you sat down on a summer day in shorts, they like got you up with a spatula, right? Yeah. And my, gr uh, my grandmother had that uh, uh, place. Like she was yeah. not Italian, but like, yeah. if you're poor in Appalachian, you also, the two nice things you have, right. nobody's touching. Right, ever. And they kept the cellophane on the lampshade, yeah. right? So yeah. it, yes, all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Instantly flammable. Yeah. But that was fine because nobody turned the light on in that room. Yeah. Nobody was there and it kept it nice. Yeah. So, you know, and and then the basement kitchen, which is where the action was, and all the women were. And I realized that the women would speak entirely differently when they were just with the other women, the other 119 other <laughs> members of the immediate family, you know, and um, and they would make fun of the men, and they love the men. No one is more adored in you know than an Italian family than in an Irish family, a Jamaican family, right. a Cuban family. The men, they're gods. They're beautiful. They're perfect. Doesn't mean that their women don't make fun of them when they're by themselves. Yeah. So I would listen to my aunts talk about the princes, these, but they would go, let's tell Joey, their brother, let's tell Joey that I got the brajol, like the meat, that at the butcher he doesn't like. I got it at the butcher he likes, but let's <laughs> tell him I got it at the butcher he doesn't like. Let's see what he does. And it, it was like men were a chemistry. I know what Joey does. Joey lost his shit. <laughs> and yeah. No, Joey, he would. 
nice guys, they're nice guys. And so Joey would sit down at the refractory table or on benches, there weren't even chairs, big benches. And so Joey, you know, sit down and go, and they say, oh, Joey, this week with the kids, was we're getting ready for first communion. I was like, I don't know, it was going so bad. I had to go to the butch on the corner. I didn't go to the avenue. And Joey would look like, like Juan Valdez tasting the coffee. <laughs> and he'd go like, no, 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 babe, it's okay. It's okay. It's not a big deal. He'd look and go, I can tell it's not the same, but it's fine. And the women wouldn't say a word, but they would look at each other and go, no, I know you have a very fine palate. And then they go back into the kitchen and they would laugh. And they would laugh. And I thought, okay, this is really something going on. I didn't have a theory yet because I was like eight. Yeah, but it was percolating in your head. <laughs> it was right there. So that's when I, I've looked at the differences. And, and um, Can I ask, did you have brothers and sisters? or was I have one older brother. I have okay. one older brother. So he was, part of the, he was part of the joke that was being made. He was part of the joke, but he also, my brother taught me, I dedicated the actually the academic book to my brother Hugo because he always taught me, he was a big music guy. I mean, uh -huh. still, I mean, he just listens, he doesn't play. Although his kids were musical, but um, he taught me always to listen to the words. So this is, we had, he, he was in, we then moved to Long Island, uh, to the big immigration out of Brooklyn, like everybody. And he had a Sony, um, you know, a record player. Uh -huh. And, you know, we would listen to Bob Dylan. He would make me six years older. So I'd be like nine and he was 16. Yeah. And he'd be, you know, I'd be sitting down listening to Jim Morrison, but listening to the words. Yep. And listening and listening to Frank Zappa and Susie Cream. Oh, Frank Zappa. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, I'm really listening and I'm getting the humor and I'm getting the, but it was always listening to the words. And so, you know, he gave me a real sense of um, the texture of language and the way that, you know, music enhances it. It has to do that whole other level of stuff. But, um, but so, and, and we, you know, uh, there was, uh, my mother was severely depressed. Um, she uh, she got cancer early in her life. She was very sick for a long time. Um, it was, I think we spent a lot of time trying to cheer my mother up. I think mm -hmm. it's not an unusual story for people who learn to use humor as a yeah. way to yeah. life, yes. right? Yeah, I'm familiar with this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's a survival technique. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's either that or a lot of violence and throwing up. And humor yeah. is so much more pleasant. Really. True, and it allows you to live indoors, and um, <laughs> you know sometimes. <laughs> and um, so we, uh, and actually, we grew up reading funny things. I don't know how we got this. We had good librarians. I had good teachers in my huge, my huge public, huge public, huge public high school. And Alan King and um, uh, Alan Sherman. I had the Rape of the Ape when that came out. That was stuff on sex. I didn't even understand what he was writing about, but I was laughing. We watched, you know, come on. We're, I mean, again, I'm older than you, but watching The Laughing and The Smothers Brothers and, you know, really looking at the stuff and and loving it and really, um, and, and never thinking I would be in the world of it, but just grateful it was there. And so I think a lot of it came out of, you know, living in New York um, I'm sure you've heard other people say this. It's like, if you're not funny in Brooklyn, they'll kill you. I mean, it's really, you know, I mean, it's, it, it really, it's, it's a way just to, 
to get through, um, especially in a big family for a girl, it was one of the few ways you could actually get yourself heard. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So my, even though I didn't grow up in the city, my family had the same thing. You know, there was only four of us, but we used to call dinner, like dinner was warfare, right? Like you had to be, you, you had to be quick-witted or else the sarcasm would just smack you in the face. And if you got hit once and didn't stand back up, the rest of dinner was going to be terrible. Like everybody was was going to come after you. Was that true even of your mom? Oh, yeah. I mean, the four of us were, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think it was funny, though. Like you were just saying, like, if you're not funny in Brooklyn, they'll kill you. Like the sarcasm at its very nature, I think, is sort of a mean language. And so yeah. for us, it was like that wit, the, the humor that we developed, uh, or that I think that my sister and I developed, was a defense mechanism of like, well, I need to just keep that that off of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? I think that's right. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that's where it's both, humor is both a shield and a weapon. Yes. Right? Because it does. It protects you, but at the same time, it allows you, if, if you need to push that shield and, you know, whack somebody over the head with it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, it is effective in that way as well. Yeah. It's so, really so you have this really interesting, like, big family, Italian family, which, not the stereotype, but, like, yeah. loud talking. Like, it is not a quiet environment that you were growing <laughs> up in. Uh, you got an older brother who's sort of introducing you to this stuff and this sort of um, this group of women who are sort of bringing you into their world and explaining like their existence away from the men. 
Like that, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting childhood. So what are you like in school? Like when you leave that and go out into the world, like as you get into high school, like who are you then? Oh, what a nice question. Um, I am, I am the girl that nobody ever fell in love with across a room. Um, I, I am really, I'm somebody that, um, you know, <laughs> because on, on, um, on a good day, I look like Janis Joplin, you know, <laughs> that's I, not, not true. That's not true. Not, no, on a, I really, um, I wanted to look like Julie from the mod squad, you know, <laughs> I wanted to have hair that was like saran wrap Sure. and like, or Joni Mitchell or, I, I, and I could no more look like those girls like even with surgery, I couldn't look yeah. like those girls, right? It was entirely different um, structure, architecture, blueprint, anything. And um, and so, but it, again, it was a huge high school, big public high school. There were like 903 kids in my graduating class. Holy like, shit. Yeah, there were 3,000 kids in the high school. That's bigger than, that was bigger than my entire high school. Yeah. Your, yeah. your graduating class was. Yep, I, I hear that from a lot of people. Yeah, that's crazy. So you were also in this environment where, like, you couldn't even, like, I mean, I've, I've taught in a school that was that big, and, like, I've told people, you don't even really get a culture in that school because you you can't ever know everybody. So you find your little niche, and that's sort of where you exist. Right. And so I was, um, yeah, so I had friends from different groups, um, but it was, I wore, uh, my clothes were, I couldn't afford to wear like the Hakapu shirts or whatever the uh, kids were wearing at that time. But so I, I figured this was the start, the real start of my, if I can't join them, I'm going to beat them or at least be as different as pop. I'm not going to yes. try to pay. Yeah. So all of my clothes were from thrift shops. I still have several very, very good friends. I mean, like women I talk to twice a week from those days. And one, my friend Bonnie keeps reminding me anytime she feels that I'm getting too big for my boots, something good happens. She just wants to remind me of the time that I bought a like Chinese silk, it must have been from the 40s dress. And it was too tight for me to sit in it. <laughs> but I wore it to school. I mean, these things were like 75 cents. I wore it to school and I had to stand in all my classes. Oh my but God. I did. I stood up the whole day. I stood up in that dress because if I sat down, I realized it was going to split on my ass. So that day I stood up like like something out of a hopper painting, you know, like leaning against the wall in a languorous fashion. But um, so I, um, you know, I did not fit in. And then I was one of the first um, women at Dartmouth College. I was the the poor girl who was their poster child to prove they had diversity. But let me ask, like, why do you go there? Like, do you go to, like, what is it that makes you want to go to Dartmouth? Um, it was a teacher from high school who said, Bereka, they're letting in broads. He, had, he was the football player there. He'd been there just for a year. And, um, and my other two choices, like some people go to guidance counselors or yeah. they go to college, whatever admissions people. I went to a psychic. <laughs> That's how I okay. decided. And, you know, that was nearby. It was cheaper. And there was an express bus that would go from my house to Queens College and my mother was from um, Quebec, so I applied to McGill. 
And then I applied to Dartmouth. And it was cheaper to go to Dartmouth because they actually gave me such a package because they really, they, there were no women. And the women who were applying were all the alumni daughters. They were people uh, who were part of that whole world. So there yeah. were no working class people. There was nobody that fit into, you know, anything. You know, so it was like, you know, me, a couple of Jewish girls, a couple of black girls, you know, four Hispanic girls, a couple of Native Americans. We were, I mean, and we... It sounds like we, Animal we got, House. This sounds like well, the, yeah, like the fraternity like, of Animal House exactly, where they put, like, right. everybody to the side. Right, but we really did. Right, yeah. when the guy, no, when the, like, the white guys. But that's really yeah. what it, it really was. So that, and again, these are true stories, man. I can't make this up. Yeah. I, I, I don't write novels, you know, like I just pay attention. So, in fact, I wrote a book about my Dartmouth days called Babe, uh, Babes in Boyland, uh, Personal History of Coeducation in the Ivy League, which is actually now taught at Dartmouth, um, which is Can nice. I ask, like, what did you go to study? Or were you just, like, did oh, you have anything in mind? I had, I had no idea. I, yeah. my, my father drove me up. Um, I thought that was going to be the answer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and in 1967, Buick Skylark, and we looked at all these kids, and they all looked like they were from the planet Pepsodent. And, you know, I'm there with my big fuzzy hair and bad skin and cheap clothes, and I'm terrified. And my father is a man of very few words, but he looked at me, and he said something really important, and I tell it to all, now 33 years of teaching at UConn, every one of my classes has heard it. He said... Gina, you don't like it here. You take the next bus home. <laughs> and that gave me more permission. Yeah. It was like, so, you know, they're not shaming you to a radiator. You don't like it, you come home. Give yeah. it a shot. Try it. And that gave me more freedom and gave me the chance to do well than all these other people whose parents were telling them, we're paying for you to do this, and you better do this, and you better be pre-med, and you better get into engineering, and you better... So, so I could actually go to school and like it and do well. And so that was, you know. Or not and find great. something else. Right, exactly. I know. Yeah. And that's what I'm always saying. My students think, they come in, it's like, I don't know if I should be here, Professor Bereka. And I said, then go away. Work yeah. retail, work at the bar, travel. Go teach English in Prague. I mean, I used to tell them that. Um, um, but I said, this is, you know, the university is still going to be here. You come back when you need to. Yeah. It's like. You know, this is fine. It's like, I don't get a commission, you know? <laughs> right. In fact, I would much rather only teach people that want to be here. It's sort of a pain in the ass to teach people that yeah. are not that interested. Right. And that it's just a different time. I mean, for a lot of, you know, especially for a lot of boys, but their fontanelles don't close until they're 24. Yeah. You know, they're not ready yet. They're not just, they want to do something else at 18. They need to go be somewhere else and do something, but, but whatever it is. So I, I went there and, and English and I found each other, you know, words and I found each other. So that was what you settled on majoring in? Yeah. So I was an English major. I had great teachers. Um, I, um, I, I had some terrible teachers. Um, and, and I had no idea. The last thing I wanted to do was, I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I didn't have a clue. I, well, I mean, you were an English time. major, so yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, I <swear. laughs> yeah. I've had this discussion with many people on the show, like, and then I graduated and thought, what do I do with this thing? <laughs> right. I hope there's a niche under a bridge that I can. <laughs> yeah. and, but no, but I'm still, you know, I, I, it's still a terror, right? I mean, it's still terrifying. <laughs> and I'm always telling them, it's never going to hurt you to be well-spoken and well-read. 
honest to God, that yeah. is not going to be a deficit. So whenever you decide to go on to do, this is a good start. Right? I've told people, when they do the studies, and I've, I've, I've said this on the show before, when they do the studies for who makes the most money out in the business world, it is always people with an English degree because your ability to communicate in the written word determines how far you get in management because management is oftentimes managing people that they can't meet with individually. So you have to be able to communicate. And I, I don't know why every English department in the world isn't like, hey, by the way, look, we're really good for liberal arts. We're really good for thinking and all that stuff. But for those parents that think an MBA is better, just so you know, you make more money as an English major than an MBA. Right. No, and I think that, you know, one of the, I mean, the, the real answer to that, um, sadly, is what I found out from, from people is that English majors don't go back and donate the way oh, those other people do because in a way, right? Because, I mean, what you were talking about is, you know, trying to set up a, a world where the English majors and the word people and the creative people and the music people and everybody, you know, can come together. But um, there really aren't the places, the people who are donating money to that are the tech people, are, you know, the, the entrepreneurial, but they're entrepreneurial in a way that doesn't deal with the creative entrepreneurial stuff. That's where we need to sort of get our stuff together to make that happen and to support. And that's, I think, I really think it's because there is still this weird idea that smart, creative funny, intelligent, what you know, whatever words you want to throw into that mix, that somehow it only counts is if they're scarce. Yeah. That there isn't an incubator mentality. Right. And that is, you know, what we're talking about in terms of getting people to share the work, to send it out, to not be afraid to publish, to not be afraid to fail, to try something and fail. There are books, you know, people say, have you ever started a book that you didn't finish and, I'm, and they're talking about reading and i'm saying i didn't i've started books i didn't finish in writing yeah i mean i got a whole you know, folder full know. of that stuff yeah. <laughs> you know it's not as if because it, it isn't that you've got some muse on your shoulder it isn't you sit down you type where you handwrite i i start out by handwriting everything and then i type it in and, um, and there are times when I'm typing, it looked so nice when I was writing it. And by the time I'm typing it in, I'm going, oh my, this is tedious. What have I done? What have I yeah. done? <laughs> <laughs> but I still type it in because there might be something that it fits into, an idea that I have no idea that I'm going to have in five years that I'm going to remember. Ah, I had that whole really bad description of whatever was going so you on have a, you have a folder of unused writing. I have, oh, I have um, a room. I have an entire yeah. <laughs> I mean, Most my, of mine is digital at this point, but like very oh. oftentimes if I get stuck, I'm like, I'm just going to go read some of this old stuff because yeah. I know there's going to be something in there that like isn't a total piece of shit that may jumpstart me today. Right, absolutely. And that's it because it's like um, I feel uh, very much, I'm, I'm glad to hear you do that because it's, it's reassuring. <laughs> and I feel like um, a seagull over a landfill. You know, I mean, I really do. That's I have, amazing. Yeah. you know, but I'm going around, I'm, going, ah, ah, I'm looking for a shiny object. Yeah. And it could just be, you know, the top of a, of a soda can, like the pop top. And it'd be like, ah, and it turns out that that's, you know, I couldn't figure out how to use it before, but it's there. Yeah. It's there. And so um, all writers that I know um, recycle. 
You have to. It's, it, it's really, it's, it's, and then if you do it enough, then they call it a signature style. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You just have to stick around long enough and get enough stuff in print. Then they yeah. say, oh, those are the themes and the, the images. And she draws from this. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. There's that sick notebook from 1993. When that's was what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, my 24-year-old yeah. self. Yeah. That's, this is what it is. But fine. Whatever. It, yeah, yeah, I can't tell you how oftentimes I laugh. Like, I, one of the things I tell people, and then I want to get to the next part of your story, is that I don't really care what readers and critics have to say about my stuff because yeah. I don't really write it for them. And yeah. as a writer, you know, like, I, I, you know, I just pulled it from here. I was trying to do this thing. This is what happened. Like, yeah. people ascribe stuff to it, and I'm like, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like great, super. That's not what I meant, but if that's what you got, like, sometimes that happens. Yeah. Exactly. No, intentionality. We cannot do intentionality. Yeah. If you have to tell people what you meant when you were writing, you didn't say it well. Yeah, right? I mean, if you have to supply your own footnotes, then you're sort of missing the point. That is a very nonfiction writery thing to say. And I, I, whole, <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like I 100%. So we only, we, we only got about 15 or 20 minutes left and there's a lot of the story, but this happens a lot of times on the show. Sure. So you That's graduate cool. from Dartmouth and like, you're one of the first women to go through the, through that, you know, that school. What is it like? And what do you do right after? Like, what's the next step? You got this, you know, I was a working class kid that went to, you know, like, so I sort of get like, you know, there's some fiscal and financial realities if you don't have a bank account. Right. Absolutely. So um, I come out, I mean, I, I came out with loans, but not huge loans. I mean, I, I did not um, have the burden that a lot of students have today, which is really terrifying. And it was it a different easy. time back then, too, for that well, stuff. Like, even for, you know, and, and, um, and loans for tax deductible. I mean, it, it, yeah. you know, there were many ways that we, we have to go back to that. We can't, we can't punish yeah. people for getting an education. And um, uh, so actually, I, I had, because I really wanted to get my money's worth, because I am a gutter snipe, I would always, every semester, I'd take extra classes and take whatever classes look good. And, um, and uh, I actually left Darvis the trimester, and I left two semesters early and went to England. I had done um, two terms there. And I thought, I'm going back. And that, going to England was the best thing I ever did. Coming back was the second best thing I ever did. Because I had never been out of the country. I mean, I've been to Canada, and that was it. But we never yeah. traveled. We never that doesn't count. Anything. Yeah. And, um, and it was the, the idea that I could go somewhere else and live in another city. And, like, they didn't know where I was from. I mean, at Dartmouth, every time I opened my mouth, I... You know, I, I, I talk the way I talk. Yeah. And, but in England, it's like I was just a yank. I was just, yeah. they couldn't place me. And anyway, so I worked for the BBC. I, I did writing for them. I did basically piecework, right? I did uh, How do you get a job stuff. with the BBC just showing up there? I, well, actually, I had started, I got a grant from Dartmouth to um, work at uh, uh, the the department, what was the education department 
at the, not the London School of Economics, the, the London Educational Authority. And so I did a comparison, it was like $1,000, but that was about $1,000, like I could live on that. Yeah, that's, that months. was money back then. Yeah, that was money. And so I you know, was in a bed set, I was in a tiny room, that was all I needed, I was in London. I was in, I, I mean, I was in love with being in another city and yeah. just walking, all I did was walk, I walked everywhere. Isn't I mean, it amazing? London's amazing. It, it was absolutely incredible, and it was, um, I could get, uh, you know, I would uh, get online, I would queue up for the tickets to the theater, that if you got there, you know, and they were left over, I could get them for a pound, I would go four nights a week, I saw Jeremy Irons, I saw Judy Dench. To the National uh, Theater there, over on the other side of the river? National Theater across yeah. the river, but I also, I saw Jonathan Price in Hamlet four times, I mean, he was the Hamlet of Epic our generation. Um, yes, at the, yeah. I don't know if it was at the Globe. I think it was an even smaller theater. But I have to, I, I don't remember, but I just, because he played, Jonathan Price played Hamlet and the Father's Ghost <laughs> together. And it was the only time that Hamlet has ever been scary. And it's like, I had done a lot of Shakespeare in college. I, I read, I was one of my focuses of study. And I just kept going back because I couldn't figure, I was like, it was absolutely amazing. And um, so I'd go to the theater all the time, and so I lived cheaply. Um, and then I applied to Cambridge University because it was the only thing I knew how to do well was to be a student. And I was working on a playground. I worked at a, a council house, which is their public housing, basically. So it was in a rough neighborhood. I felt at home. Um, you know, the kids couldn't scare me. I could scare them. And um, so I worked at the Camden County um, playground and then worked for the BBC. So it was like piecing together all these jobs. And- um, So once you got there, you just started like hustling. Yeah, absolutely. But I got a Dartmouth, I, I gotta say, um, I think they paid me off for having finished the degree there. And um, uh, I got a fellowship to go to, I went to a women's college at Cambridge. The wow. university still all male, but I needed a palate cleanser after. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of those guys at Dartmouth. After that. And um, so then I, I did that. And then I came back to New York and I started working at ABC News, writing like in-house newsletters, got a job, just, you know, basic entry level uh, sort of job. And, um, and then a friend who was teaching at Queens College said, that they needed somebody to teach basic introductory classes and you know the the, the Cambridge degree counted. And um, would I do that? And the last thing I wanted to do is teach. And then I walked into this night class. There were oh. 28, 28 people in the class, all older than I was. I was yeah. 24. Night classes are really interesting, aren't they? It was great. And yeah. I thought, oh, like, oh, shit, this is what I have to do. It was the <laughs> vocation. It really was. It was the voice. I yeah. got the voice. I got a calling. And I love teaching. And these people were coming from working all day or going to work yeah. all night like at the airports or whatever. And they just needed to know how to write. Yeah. You haven't and lived until you've taught a night class of adults like that yeah. in college. Like yeah. that. Yeah. It, that is one of the most interesting and fun things I've ever done. It, right? I mean, it's great because talk about hungry. Yeah. And ready. And, and it I, was... I also got a few vets. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I always found that, you know, that most of the time, most of the vets I talked, because I was in Appalachia, didn't yeah. have strong writing skills, right? Uh, 
but I knew yeah. that they were there because there was shit in their head that they needed to get out. And so it was yeah. less about making sure their structure was right. And more, but I mean, it was just like, I didn't have to, get, I didn't have to beg them to write. Like right. they were like, you know, uh, horses at the start of a horse race. They were just like, open the gate, open the gate. Yeah. Like, let's go. Uh, yeah. And I found that to be so powerful and moving and, 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 and just like, one of those things that you're like, oh, what an honor to be able to like do this. I, that's, I think that's exactly the right image. They, it really is. It, it is waiting for uh, it, permission to start, but they are, they're ready to go. And the yeah. stories are amazing. And I remember there was yeah. one guy who was, um, and this I think was the first class I taught. So this is, this is thousands of students ago. <laughs> and it was a man who was in his early 30s, and he worked as the night security guard at the New York Public Library. And I said, wow. He said, yeah, but I don't read the books. And I thought, it, 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 I got this image of this guy. He's like caged in for eight hours a night, and he's there with all of this stuff, but he doesn't even... Like he doesn't like the books. And I remember again, true story at the, um, we were reading Oedipus mm -hmm. and over two classes, taught two nights a week. And he said, I can't, I, I can't imagine how this is going to turn out. <laughs> and well, I thought, buddy. you know what? Not well. <laughs> I would, I, but I thought I would pay money like not to know how Oedipus turns out. Like, do you want to right now? It would be like starting the Bible going, how is this Adam and Eve thing going to work out? You right. know, it's like, what's going to happen with these two? Yeah. I mean, it'd be, to read that for plot, there was also something great about coming to the stuff like a blank slate, like yeah. writing their own stuff for real. So anyway, so I really like that. So I came back and... Um, and then I only went to graduate school because they said they weren't going to hire adjuncts who weren't enrolled in a program. Yeah. That's why, that's why I, so I. So I that's why you got your PhD? Yeah. I backed into it. I absolutely backed into it. It was so you, not. So you had no desire to teach, taught this not, one class and then were like, well, yeah. I guess I need a PhD now. No. Yeah. No, I know. I would have stayed as an adjunct. I would have kept working. But that's what as I mean when adjunct. they said they wouldn't hire you yeah. unless you did that. You're right. like, well, yeah. yeah, that's the most yeah. ass backwards way I've ever heard anybody decide <laughs> to get a PhD. I'm not gonna lie. I've heard a lot of stories. <laughs> no, that was it. And it's it's again, it's the truth. They were just um, we were trying. Actually, the adjuncts as they do every five years. I realize it's a cycle. We were trying to unionize. We go to yeah. meetings. Trying and it didn't happen. And I just thought, you know, it was the City University of New York. It was on 42nd Street in those days. And I thought, well, my family always thought I'd end up on 42nd Street. So what the hell am I gonna go? No. And it, no. it was, you know, it, and so I was teaching two classes. I was working in an office, in the development office, and I was taking three classes. And um, and then I discovered that I really liked that too. So it was, I really feel, I'm incredibly lucky. And I also, you know, I can, I can meet a deadline. I can show up sober and make conversation and I can, you know, and I, I can, um, I can help people do stuff with language. And so, but how lucky are we that we get to work with people who want to do that? It's a gift every day I get to do it. Like, yeah. 
you know, I feel like had, if I could go back and do it again, I think I would have done less teaching and more of this because this feels like home to me. Um, and I, as you know, it's really hard to teach writing in a classroom. Yeah, it is. Like, yeah, I mean, it absolutely is, but it's still, you know, if different people learn in different ways. Yeah. And so if it's, um, and I'm, you know, I, I get the classes are, are always filled because there just aren't enough of them. But, um, and also because, I mean, a lot of my students have gone on to publish and have become writers and they've, they've really, they've done it in part because they have to send their stuff out yeah. and then they get used to it. And, um, you know, that too becomes a habit like everything well, else. Well, they learn the business of writing. Like it, this right. is the thing that doesn't oftentimes get taught in, I right. mean, in any, right. in, in any level. Like if you want to be an author, there's not really classes in universities that are like, let me tell you what an agent does. Let me tell you right. what the difference between a small press is and Penguin. Let me tell you, right. you know, why these different kinds of editors are important in the process. And here's what you need to think about in terms of marketing. Like that's all stuff yeah. that you kind of figure out, you know, as you're flying a thousand miles an hour, 30,000 feet above the earth. <laughs> and hoping, right. And learning not to look down. Yeah. But it, right. But it's the idea that they also, my students, I, I, I did, the strategy that works for me and for them is they have to, we don't do any reading out loud. They all write every week between 750 and 1200 words. They mail it to each other. They all read each other's work. Yeah. We come in, they have to write a page of comments on everybody else's work because you don't get to write unless you edit. Yeah. Because who is ever just a writer without having to give back? Yeah. They form a community, but that community is competitive because then on okay. the day that we meet for class, they anonymously vote on the three best essays for that week. Yeah. And those are the ones we discuss because... You, not everybody gets a lollipop. Yeah. If you if you know your audience, if you've got to write for people. It's like, but that's not how I like to write. Well, then you're never going to have your essay discussed because this community of writers yeah. does not want to read. Nobody is going to ask you to do stuff that they don't want to see and that they're not interested in hearing. It's not going <laughs> to. I guess that's what I mean by not learning in class, right? Like it literally yeah. is. You got to write every day. You got to get yeah. with other writers. You got to talk to other writers. You got to show each other writers your stuff. Th then you got to revise it. Then you can come to the class and we can do something. Exactly. Right? But like, but you got to do a yeah. bunch of stuff outside of here before you ever step foot in here, or else otherwise we're just talking about what we could do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why when the whole idea that because and I make fun of it because it's just because I'm I'm just an immoral person going to hell. But I mean, I said we do not get up in the class and then like read our grocery list in a right. passionate voice with lots of stuff. And yes, the wilted greens that will go but only one sautéed. It's like, no, no, you come in here with a complete, you know, a completed piece of work that you're ready to show to other people. Yeah, yeah. This is, we do it, not applaud. Is that what we do? And I think it's also really important to, you know, I think going right to college, if you're a writer at 18, is almost a mistake because yeah. so much of writing, and this is the other thing I always mean by it, so much of writing is figuring out who you are and what your voice is and what is important to you. Once, as a nonfiction writer, I, maybe it is as yeah. a fiction writer, I don't know, I only can speak as a nonfiction writer. Me too. And 
I just found that like, until you have that lens and focus of who you are and what's important and what you want to say, it's really hard to learn how to write because you're always sort of working with mashed potatoes, right? Like it's right. never going to fully form and be solid because you're like, I don't really have a thing. I don't really know what's important to me. And that's hard to teach somebody. I mean, I don't think it's possible to teach them that. Right. Well, but that's also where they have to get, I'm, um, you know, they have to get other vocabularies. They have to read yeah. outside yes. the things they're used to reading so that they have to take classes in agriculture, in yep. music in, you know, um, horticulture, in, um, you know, in science. It, they have to come with different words. Yeah. They can't just keep using the word wistful or, <laughs> you know, like hydrangea or yeah. longing. It's like, no, go read something else. Go read a car magazine. Read Popular Mechanics. Yeah. And go live. Out. That's the thing for me is like, go volunteer somewhere. Go put yourself yeah. in positions where people don't look and sound like you. Go move right. to a new city where you don't, like I was a poor kid and I moved all over the country with like a hefty bag and a car that barely ran. Like I pulled yeah. into places and, you know, on more than one occasion, I had less money in the bank than I could withdraw. And I'm not saying, and it's easy. It was easier for me to do that because I'm a white dude in America. So I realized that like every human being can't do that version of it. But through those things, I, you both get an inner strength, which, you know, you're a working class kid that went to college and, you know, went to like, you just, there's nothing, you suddenly don't become afraid of things. And you're like, I can, like, nothing can stop me. Right. I think that that is absolutely right. And it's the idea that um, it's not that it's, it's just, it becomes less scary because yeah. you realize if you keep, if you keep working that you do accrue, it's like coral or something. You accrue sort of, you know, you do enough of it and you start to build this stuff up yeah. and it's, it's beautiful and it's rough and it's sort of unformed There's whatever, but it's there. Yeah, it's, it's something real that you've got around you. You've made something. Yeah. And, and you know, that, I, tell, I tell those young kids, like, I am oftentimes one of the more interesting people in the room of people that I'm in because I was a poor kid that set out and did all this stuff. So I have yeah. these weird stories. Like, you have these stories of, like, I'm not making this up. And people are like, <laughs> well, how did that happen? And you're like, well, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Like, the choice was either to stay where I was or to go do this. And that's what going to do this looks like for someone like me. That's right? great. Yeah. You, but you have that as well. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was either this or like live in a, you know, one room apartment in Queens, have four kids before I was 22 yes. and like a screen that let in bugs. And, and, and I knew enough of what that life looked like. And I had cousins who were perfectly happy yeah. doing that. Their, their kids were loud and they were going to be the next generation of the Ottoman ladies. Yeah. But I thought I, I couldn't have done that. That yeah. would have, I didn't have, I didn't have what they had to get through that and they didn't have what I had that would have made it too complicated for me to yeah. do it with love and with the grace that they had. And so I, I couldn't have done it. And that's, I think, the most important way to frame that, which is when I tell people this, just like you said, like I, I have a lot of respect for my friends that didn't leave town and who have mm -hmm. families and who've raised all that, like, I, at no point do I ever look down my nose at that stuff yeah. because they are solid people raising good kids, you know, doing, yeah. doing the, doing the daily thing of life. That is really hard. That just wasn't my path. That just wasn't the right. thing that I wanted. And 
I think that's what I mean by being 18 and a writer. You can't really look like you have to sort of figure out what you are first before you know what you want to say. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know if we, we don't, have, I mean, obviously today everything costs a billion dollars, but like we don't really <laughs> encourage those young writers to do that. And there aren't the outlets and things that like I, how many, I wrote for zines and all kind of shit for 10 years, you know, like honing my voice in places that like, you know, a few thousand people would read, but you know, you'd make a little money and you could bartend and you could cobble together a sort of meager existence. Yeah. And I think that I am, um, what I'm also uh, always hope for my students is that they will understand that the meager existence part is actually a really important thing to learn how to live on. Yeah. It's, but it is, it's knowing yeah. that you can get by yes. without a lot of stuff because, you know, kids today, but it's sort of like that you can, <laughs> you know, but I, I mean, I didn't have a driver. You talk about the differences in, in life. I didn't have a driver's license until I got the job at the University of Connecticut. Oh, I was yeah. even, I got a bicycle, but I would ride to class. I look at the Wicked Witch of the West, I have a basket in the front. I don't, but I got that from, from England, you know, using the bike, but, um, uh, I realized I couldn't like check, you know, get a check cashed in Connecticut without a driver's license. They thought I was on parole. They were like, well, how is an adult not have a driver's license? And I was like, I grew up in Brooklyn. <laughs> I just lived in London. Like, why would I have I, a driver's license, you maniac? But I learned to go get a driver's license. But I mean, you can live without a car in America. People don't think that's possible. Yeah. Well, I didn't have the money. I didn't do it. And, you know, there's not a job on this planet that I'm above. Like when you don't have money in your bank account, like I clean bars at three o'clock in the morning. Like I've worked yeah. third shift at a gas station. Like, and you know, when I didn't have money, I went and did the jobs and I did them as good as I could do them. And you know, like the, at 48, if the, if everything fell apart tomorrow, I'd go get a job. Like there, you know, just because I'm not making a hundred thousand dollars a year and wearing a suit, which I don't really do anyway. Right. Like, I don't care, right? Like it's that's, yeah. and that I think is a there is a comfort into that knowing, like you said, like having struggled, you're like, well, I'm also part of a community of writers and people who yeah. understand what that means, and like you learn to be kind and empathetic because you see other people struggle, and you know, like if you're an artist or you're a writer and you're trying to make this happen, like that's not always an easy thing to do. And you can always take the next bus home. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You can always take the next bus home. I mean, I do, I always have, I, and this is part of it, but I always have an up-to-date passport. I, I have a terrific 30-year marriage. I have, uh, you know, I put my money away in retirement. You know, we own the house we live in, but I have a current passport and I always have enough cash to get me out of wherever I need to be. Yeah. So some of my favorite interviews are the ones that do exactly this, which we don't even get through everything because yeah. it's just been such a fantastic time. The book you have out now, is it out now? Is Fast Funny no, Women it's coming out, now? out on March, uh, the week of March 2nd. Oh, so, we and got, so we got that coming out like... Yeah. This is like this is like right at the end of the virus. So you might actually get to go do stuff in person. I don't know. I'm I'm setting stuff up. Um, you know, I, we're hopefully set up stuff virtually, but and it's really the I mean, I'm lucky enough to put this together, but we have Jane all the people who wrote for this book wrote original pieces. So Jane Smiley wrote something for this, and March Piercy wrote something for this. I mean, the great women writers. So when the wonderful publisher, it's a small independent press is doing it, a former student of mine, actually. Oh, oh that's writing. great. How great yeah. is that? 
No, it's really, it's the whole, you know, Mobius strip loop. So, and uh, <laughs> like 30 of the writers or, you know, women that I, I sort of brought up and the other like 45 are ones that raised me. So it's, it's really, so they all- What a little homecoming movies. for you. It's, no, it's great. I'm really thrilled by it. I am actually, for me, this is, uh, again, it's, it's a magnificent thing, but these great writers are in this book and they're all funny. And I said, like, you know, if writing is supposed to hold a mirror up to life, these hold a compact mirror up to life because they're all 750 words or less. So they're hilarious and they're smart and they are hard won. And, you know, uh, it's coming out in an audio book. Two different women are reading it because there are a lot of women who come from, you know, there are African-American women, there are Asian women, there are poor women, there are women from age 20 to 80 nine in this wow wow yeah so this it was and without like i didn't pick people so like oh i will make sure this is a diverse bouquet of like these are the writers i know and so it's um it's gonna be it's gonna be a trip i'm just delighted that you could find us all in one place it is you know, one of the best, I think this is the other wonderful part about being part of the literary community. And particularly, I'll, I'll, I'll never be part of like the big publishing literary community because I have mm-hmm. friends that do that, but that's just not my world. This sort yeah. of world just below that, it, and I know you, you, I mean, you got 10 books, so you, you're, you are well established out in the world of this stuff. <laughs> but that level just below that, that sort of big publisher thing is such a diverse and wonderful place to be. Like there's yeah. so many different kinds of people because the the business structure is sort of so different that you can experiment and 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 try new things and like and work with young authors and work with people that like you know come from uh, just a variety of backgrounds that it that that to me is my favorite part about this community yeah no it's great and this you know for this it's it's woodhall press and so it's a brand new press. They just got picked up by the Independent Publishers Guild. Oh, and cool. so the stuff is really being distributed everywhere. But he was a guy, one of the great guys in my class who showed up on time and wrote every week and gave great <laughs> comments to everybody else. And now he got his MFA and he's teaching and he's writing and now he's a publisher, but he's got some great books that Woodall is doing, and it's, you know, it's accepting manuscripts, and the book is actually, I don't know if you have a real copy of it, it's a beautiful thing. They actually made a beautiful book. The cover is gorgeous. And, and Mimi Pond, who is a New York Times bestselling writer, she did Over oh. Easy. Yeah. yeah. And, and Mimi Pond, who's a New Yorker, several New Yorker cartoonists, I love cartoonists, and uh, so she designed the cover. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's just... Lucky. Yeah, lucky. it's a. I mean, it's not luck, right? Like this is you spent a yeah. career, an accidental career, doing this. <laughs> That's right. No, it really is. But it is. It's a wonderful because again, it's it's the coming at it from all different ends. So it's wonderful that there are all these young people in it, and then the like senior mavens of the coven. It's like a big coven of writers, <laughs> you know. Well, and so it's a lot of fun. It was lovely talking to you. I'm sad that we didn't get to talk about the Friars Club and all the honorary doctorates and all the stuff that you did, but (laughs) that just gives us a reason to come back together and do this again. I would love to. This has been just a treat. And and I don't say that's all the boys. This has been great. I am really, I'd love to talk more about writing with you. Yeah, it's wonderful. And for those people that don't know, although you maybe tell, like, I believe our pre-call went about an hour and a half. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, it went about as long as the interview did. 
Yeah. <laughs> but this is great. It's, you know, congratulations. And thank you for everything that you do to bring people together. Thank you. It is my pleasure. You have a, a good rest of your day and stay safe. Thank you. You too, my doll. Bye. Well, there you have it. That was Gina Barreca on the program. Her book, Fast Funny Women, is out now. We had a hoot. She was one of my favorite people to talk to, as I mentioned on the show, and as I've told you all before, my favorite interviews are the ones where we don't get to all of the stuff we normally get to, and this was very clearly one of those episodes. I could have picked any one of a million things that she does to delve into, but she just has done so much in her life. It is hard in an hour to get through it all. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors we talked about at the top of the show. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. Don't forget, we got video podcasts coming out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel, or you can always catch the audio version of those right here on this channel. And the jam is out on Wednesdays now, so make sure you are subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.